do you believe God cares about being worshipped? I would assume that most of us would say we believe that. Do you believe that God cares about how he is worshipped? Do you believe that God cares about both things equally? That he is worshipped as well as how he is worshipped. We live in a time where many believe that as long as we're sincere, we can worship God however we want. But throughout the Bible, we find over and over that God cares deeply, not just that he is worshipped, but he cares deeply how he is worshipped. And so how then do we know if we're worshiping him properly? If he does indeed care about how he is worshipped. Well, we can have confidence that we're worshipping God properly if we're worshipping God as he has told us and taught us in his word, in the Bible. One of the leading reformers during the pivotal time of the Reformation said two main things were at stake in the Reformation. Number one, biblical worship. And number two, justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. That the way that we're made right with God is not by what we do, but by turning from our sin and trusting in what Christ has done. And that reformer, John Calvin, would say that those two things, biblical worship and how we're made right with God, is what the Reformation was all about. And it was in, those, uh, in that order that the primary thing concerning the Reformation was biblical worship. And all throughout church history, Protestants, those that aren't Catholics have always made the connection between the way we worship and who we worship. The way we worship and who we worship. The Bible teaches us that we become like that which we worship. But it also teaches that we become like how we worship. The who and the how of our worship are linked. And our passage this morning will reinforce this truth. And so I pray that on the other side of this sermon, you're convinced not just that God is worshipped, but that you're also convinced that he's worshipped rightly, according to his word. Exodus 25 begins the longest speech by God in the book of Exodus. If you think about the book of Exodus, it's pretty interesting. Two and a half chapters of the book of Exodus describe the Exodus itself. When God miraculously delivers his people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and sets them free. Two and a half chapters. One chapter details the first 80 years of Moses' life. Less than one chapter is given to the Ten Commandments. And now we enter into 13 chapters 
of instructions on the tabernacle. You just begin to think about it. It's interesting how much time is given to this section. Think about all the wildly miraculous actions of God thus far in this book. And if you still do the math, 40 chapters, there's still a lot of ground left to cover. We ended last week as God and his people have formally entered into this covenant relationship. God would be the God of this people and this people would be the people of this God. The people were at the foot of the mountain. We see that 74 Moses, Aaron, two sons, and 70 elders then go midway up the mountain. And then after sharing a meal with God himself, Moses goes higher to meet with God alone. And he goes up for 40 days and for 40 nights. What does God say to Moses during that time? The rest of the book of Exodus gives us the answer. If you've ever wondered, what must it have been like to be atop the mountain meeting with God himself? Exodus 25, through the end of the book, gives you the answer. And this is how it breaks down. Exodus 25 through Exodus 31 are the God-given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So 25 to 31, how is it that this tabernacle is to be built? Exodus 35 through 40 is the actual building of that tabernacle. And Exodus 32 through 34, the in-between section, we have the golden calf incident. In the midst of God giving Moses instructions on how he is to be worshipped, God's people think that they can worship God however they want. These chapters will meticulously communicate one message to us. And this is the message for the back part of the book of Exodus. God's eternal purpose is to dwell among people that he has made his own. God's eternal purpose is to dwell among the people that he has made his own. Let that sink in for a moment this morning. There is a way for sinful humanity to find themselves into the presence of the unapproachable holy God. And it's based on the initiative of God himself who has come to dwell with his people. If you hit Exodus 25 in your Bible reading plan, perhaps you're prone to fall off the Bible reading plan. And if I could just encourage you, with every description of a piece of furniture that will go into the tabernacle, 
It's all meant to communicate a message. It's important how God is to be worshiped. And so let's pray before we jump in this morning. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we believe that with you there are pleasures forevermore. We believe that you are worthy of every bit of glory and honor and praise and adoration and dominion. You are worthy of it all. And so then allow us to learn this morning from your word more of your heart as to why you long to be worshiped and that you care about how we worship you. And so make us as Jesus will say later on, God, make us a people who worship you in spirit and in truth. Would you allow us to behold wonderful things from your word this morning? Give us a sight line to behold the glorious riches in the unfathomable beauty of Jesus the Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I would invite you to open to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. And so to help us organize our time, let's consider two mercies of God, a couple of lessons, and then a look to a better access. Two mercies, two lessons, and a look to a better access. So let's begin with the first mercy. God reveals his intentions for his people. God reveals his intentions for his people. This is what you heard Frankie read, Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And so again, we're leaning in, we're curious, how is it that God is going to speak to Moses? What is it that God is going to say to Moses? And perhaps you, like me, are shocked that the first thing God says is for Moses to pass the offering plate, to take up an offering. Ushers, if you'll come down, we're going to do it again. Just kidding. <laughs> To be clear, this would be an offering that was not mandated. It was not sort of a compulsory offering. No, this was to be an offering that the people would give on their own volition. Look at verse 2. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. The Bible is clear. God loves a cheerful giver. And even this idea of give as you have purposed in your heart. We see these things carried over into the New Testament. That there would be both opportunity for God's people to be generous. And that there would be a heart that longs to be generous in support of the work that the Lord is doing. This is to mark the people of God. And if you think about it, it's quite an interesting building campaign. 
Usually, building campaigns, you first begin with the drawings, and you let people see what it is that they're going to do, and then you ask people to give, and then you have the thermometer, and each week you kind of blow up the thermometer. Maybe not. But building campaigns, usually, you think, let me see what I'm giving to. And before there's any description of what is to come, there's this grace, this mercy where God says, I want you to participate in the work that I'm going to do. Verses three through seven list the various items that were to be collected. Most of these items they would have received even from God and they would have seen that because this is what they took from the Egyptians as they were going out. And so again, don't miss the mercy of God, even in this command to give to this work. God could have performed another miracle. He could have sent a built, uh, a ready-built tabernacle, but instead he gives them the opportunity to contribute to the work that he's going to do, to contribute to the construction of this tabernacle. God God invites his people into his work so that they may share in his joy. And bring him his glory. God invites people into his work. That they may share in his joy. And bring him his glory. And so just out of the outset, an application for us this morning is to recognize that it is a merciful grace for God to invite you and I into the work that he is doing. And so just my admonishment, my encouragement, because it's an opportunity for us to share into his joy, don't miss these opportunities to join God in the work that he's doing. He will receive the glory and we will receive the joy. But the mercy isn't found in just an invitation to give and to contribute. No, what do we see? Verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. This would have been one of the most dramatic turning points in all of salvation history. God commissions a tabernacle, a portable tent, to be built. Why? So that he would have a dwelling place among his people. The specific word here is sanctuary. God is saying, take up contribution and build then a place that would be set apart, a holy place, a place where the Holy One Himself would dwell. This is the central theme of the rest of the book of Exodus. And and we could say that the first half of the book of Exodus, God rescuing, rescuing them from Egypt was to bring them to this place where He would be their God They would be his people, and he would dwell among them, wonder of all wonders. I think it's helpful for us just to note that the God of the Christian faith is a God who desires and who longs to be with his people. 
You will search in vain through other religions to find a God like this. Other religions put forth a God who really isn't concerned about dwelling with and being with his people, more about receiving from his people. Do this for this God. God wants to tabernacle. God wants to dwell. God wants to take up residence alongside his people. And and let's just be theologically clear. This tabernacle would not be able to contain all of who God is. He would dwell here, but he's still the God who is omnipresent. But here he would be present with his people in a unique way. You see, God's people were were on the move. They, They weren't permanently going to set up residence at the base of Mount Sinai. And so they couldn't take the mountain with them, this holy place where God has dwelt with his people. And so instead of having to move the mountain, God in great mercy says, let's build a portable tent, a tabernacle, where I will come and dwell with this people. And maybe the last mercy that we see here, just in the Lord making his intentions known, his intentions. He wants there to be a contribution because he wants there to be a construction of a tabernacle, of a holy place, of a sanctuary so that God would dwell with his people. And then verse 9, God does not leave his people to their own assumptions as to what and how this holy place should be constructed. What does it look like? How do we build it? What do we use? No, verse 9. According to all that I am going to show you, I appreciate what the ESV says here, exactly as I show you. God is going to give them every detail imaginable for how his holy house is to be built. And he's going to give every detail imaginable because God knows better than anyone else. Only a holy God would know the kind of holy place for him to dwell. If you read verse 9, we see not only is, does God have a plan... Verse 9, and then even if you read down in verse 40, you have this phrase that both reference this pattern. Verse 9, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle, as the pattern, verse 40, see to it that you make them after, after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. This earthly tabernacle that God desires to be built is to be patterned after a heavenly reality. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 says that everything that's happening here on the mountain, it's really to to serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. God gives Moses this 3D rendering 
of the tabernacle as he receives these instructions. This is going to be God's symbolic home on earth. So it makes sense that it, was, that it would match his holy habitation in heaven. One commentator, Douglas Stewart, says, What was the point of such a demand for precise adherence to this revealed design? It was to create in the people a longing for and a hope of heaven in the hearts of God's people. It's meant to stir a desire to live in God's presence forever. It matters that God is worshiped. And it matters how God is worshiped. And so a great question for us to consider this morning is from whom do we take our cues as it relates to worshiping God? I mean, who sets the guidelines? Who sets the boundaries for how you think about worshiping God? We don't create convictions merely upon what we prefer. We don't create convictions on the basis of what we think is best. No, we create settled convictions on what God has said. And the fact that God has spoken, that's not meant to be a burden for us. Ah, oh, now we have to worship God this way. No, it's meant to be a grace. God reveals how we are to worship Him. I pray, Covenant Life, that we would see God's prescriptions for worship throughout the Bible as a grace. And that we would give ourselves as a church to following, to adhering, to obeying His Word. Letting Him set the guidelines for how we worship. That leads us to the second mercy, the other mercy. Mercy number two, God gives instructions for his tabernacle. So he's revealed his intentions. He tells Moses, this is where I'm going. And then the other mercy is God gives instructions for his tabernacle. And this really is Exodus 25 all the way to the end of Exodus 27. If you were to meet someone on the street, you begin to get into a conversation, maybe not someone on the street, you were to meet a friend, and you get into a conversation with them, a friend who hasn't been to your house. I didn't think through this example. <laughs> so maybe not a friend, but a, a sort of a, a low-key acquaintance who's never been into your home, and you start describing your home, usually you begin with sort of the, the layout, the structure. Yeah, we live here. It's you know, our house. It's a, a 2-1 and has this kind of... and we. You sort of begin, it's an, open, it's an open floor concept, and you begin to think about the structure, and then you get later, perhaps, if, you, if it's a really riveting conversation, then maybe it gets to the furniture in your house. You just talk about your, your new sofa, and... Okay. <laughs> 
You read Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10, and it's not the structure, it's not the layout. God begins talking about the furniture. He begins by saying, this is what's going to be in the tabernacle. Even before knowing where the walls and the divisions are going to go, he starts talking about the furniture. Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. If you look at the little note there, perhaps in your Bible, you will learn that a cubit is approximately 18 inches. And so you just begin to think then about what God is doing. He starts with the furniture because the most important thing in the whole tabernacle, it's here. It's this small little box. The Ark of the Covenant. Long before Indiana Jones was looking for it, it was of supreme importance to the people of God. And so cubit, they would say, 18 inches, so the end of your middle finger to your elbow. The ark was 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. It wasn't enormous. It had some type of feet on it. The ark was never to sit just on the ground. It had feet on it, and the feet then had holes that were designed for poles to go through. Because this ark, again, this was a portable tent. The, the ark was to be carried around from place to place, even as the people of God wandered. It was made with acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. And we keep reading and we find out that there's something inside this ark. It's got a lid on it. But there's something inside the ark. Verse 16, you shall put into the ark, of the, into the, ark the testimony which I shall give you. And so the Ten Commandments would be placed in the ark. It's interesting. There's no picture of God. There's no statue of God. There's no artwork of God. Instead, all you have are words. And you begin to think how God has chosen to reveal himself to his people throughout their history is through the proclamation of his words. testimony, the writings, written revelation is so important in the history of God's people. The ark was not to be touched, for to touch it was to profane it, was to defame this ark. So where the concentration of God's dwelling, it would all hinge on this small little 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches tall box. There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where Uzzah, they're transporting the ark. The ark is in a wagon. The oxen are pulling it. Oxen slip, the ark gets ready to fall into the mud, and Uzzah really, in trying to, in, in so much respect to keeping the ark from being defamed by falling into the mud, he puts his hands out and catches it. 
And the Lord kills him. The Lord kills him. He, he would have known you don't touch the ark or you will die. As a thought in the moment, that there was more cleanliness in his hands than in the mud. And God over and over makes clear there is nothing that's as filthy as the human heart. You will respect my presence. God is a God who is not like us. On top of the ark, there was a lid of pure gold. Exodus 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And two and a half, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And so there's this, this lid. This lid, though, it wasn't unlike the ark. The ark was made by acacia wood and then it was overlaid in gold. And inside it was all gold. It was, it was, it was golded out. But this lid would have been made of pure gold. And, and atop of the lid, on both ends, were cherubim. Cherubim. These angelic hosts. It would have been hammered out. Verse 18 tells us, in gold, one on each end. With wings, they're flying. They're not looking up. They're looking down at the ark. It would be helpful for us to not envision kind of chubby guys with wings shooting arrows. That is not what the cherubim were. They were these glorious looking angels. The last time that we saw one, one was placed, and it wouldn't have been long ago, God's people would have read Genesis, then they would have read Exodus, and even just hearing that a cherubim would be represented here, the last time they thought about it was Exodus chapter 3. When as a consequence of their sin, they were put out of the presence of God, out of the garden, and cherubim with flaming swords were there to protect God's people, or, or to protect the people from coming back into the presence of God. They were majestic, awe-inspiring creation. And in verse 22 of chapter 25, we read, there I will meet with you. Atop the ark, cherubim on the sides, there, there in that space, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, which between the two cherubim, which, is, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. We hear the Lord saying to Moses, he will meet with him above the mercy seat. The mercy seat, mercy there. In, in, it's the word in Hebrew, keperet. It means to cover. It's the same word that we use when we think about a covering or an atonement, a covering for our sin. Keparet, Yom Kippur, the Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of covering. This mercy seat is where this covering would take place. God is enthroned and he gives mercy to his people. 
This is an atonement cover, a, a, a covering for sin. And God says, I will meet with you and I will speak with you. This cover on the box was representative of a covering of the sins of God's people. Of everything else in this tabernacle, this was the most precious thing, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was placed in the Holy of Holies, or it's called the most holy place. Only Moses and only the high priest would enter into. The high priest would go in once a year. And they would never go in without the blood of a sacrificed animal to sprinkle on that mercy seat for the sins of the people. Just think about the imagery. The imagery is meant to preach a message to us. God is above the ark in between the cherubim who aren't even looking at him because he's radiating with brilliance. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see that the angels are with two wings. They covered their eyes. They can't look upon his glory. And so God is above the ark, enthroned with the cherubim. Below God, in the ark is the law that would have exposed the people's sin. And in between the holy God and the law that made them guilty, there was sprinkled blood. When God looked down in judgment, he didn't see the law that they had broken. He saw the blood that covered their sin. The blood would stand between this holy God, and this sinful people. And then we move to the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the table of the bread of presence. Exodus 25, 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. 36 by 18 by 27. Would look like uh, a coffee table. So that's what we're thinking about. It sits outside of the Holy of Holies. So when you go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, there's one thing in the room the Ark of the Covenant. And then outside of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, there was another room, place called the Holy Place. There were three pieces of furniture in this room. The first one, the table of the presence, the table of the bread of presence. On this table, there's three types of items. Plates and dishes, which would have been for incense. Bowls, which would have been for drink offerings. And bread. Once a week... Twelve loaves of bread were made. Twelve representing the people of God. This whole thing is, is showcasing the relationship that God has with all of his people. As seen and counted in the twelve tribes of his people. Once a week, twelve loaves of bread would be placed on this table. And it's interesting for us to realize, why was the bread there? You see... 
God's people had known all about the Egyptian gods. The Egyptian gods were kind of like teenage boy deities. You just had to keep bringing them food because they just kept eating. It's like, we're going to bring food to this God because this God needs the food in order to keep doing what he does. It would, it would be wrong for us to think that somehow this bread was laid out so that, so that God would be nourished by the people that worship him. No, that's not what's happening here. The Lord doesn't need anything from us. Paul says this in a sermon in Acts chapter 17, verse 25. As though he needs anything from those of us made by our hands. No, Yahweh is not this way. And it's an important difference. He's a nourisher of his people. This was a perpetual reminder of the need for God's care of his people all the time. And in this table of presence, as people would come in, the bread would be there. It's this symbolic act of the God that's, that, that, that they are about to go meet with, that the high priest is going in to meet with. He's symbolically acting as a host. He doesn't need our bread, so he sets the table so as to feed his people. And this is what he's been doing. Manna in the wilderness, feeding of 5,000, the Lord's Supper. God is the Holy One, and this Holy One is the host. God is extending hospitality. He's embracing his people in fellowship and acceptance, and he's nourishing them as his very own. Well, the next piece of furniture in the holy place was the golden lampstand. See this in verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of, are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. The tabernacle would have been four layers thick from the sun. From any exterior light, meaning that inside the tabernacle, it would have been very dark. And so God in great mercy gives instructions for providing light. There would be a stand, kind of like a menorah, a stand with three branches on each side of this middle branch. And each branch would be hammered out and shaped as though it's like a tree each branch having almond cups. One of the aims is that the candle, the candle stand, this, this golden lampstand was meant to look like a physical tree. It wasn't just uh, some Yankee candle jar in the room. It was this ornately designed lampstand that was meant to remind us of life, in particular, a tree of life. You begin to think, wait a minute. The tree of life from the garden. And if we jump into the end of the Bible, Revelation, we see this tree in the middle of the city. The new heaven and the new earth. This lampstand was ripe with symbolism and theological significance. The, the lamp was to be lit twice. It was to be trimmed in the morning and lit in the evening. All of these specific instructions, you, you 
you read about as you continue reading into the book of Leviticus. But twice it was to be lit. The wick was to be trimmed in the morning, and it was the candle, the the lampstand was to be lit in the evening. And the priest would come into this holy place, and they would do that. Why? A common example, you go trick-or-treating. You're walking with your kids, and you go to the house, and you say, uh, kids, we're not going to that house. And, and you don't have to trick-or-treat whatever you've made up in your mind about convictions on trick-or-treating. Praise be to God. Just an example. You walk up to the house, and you think, yeah, well, we're not going to go up there either because there's a horror movie on the front porch or because the lights are off. The lights are off. And so we do this. We walk and we say, kids, not there. No one's home. Not there. No one's home. Every night, Yahweh's house and his lights are off. The question is, wait a minute, where did our God go? This was a visual reminder that he was home. This was a visual reminder that it's not just your obedience that God wants. He wants your fellowship. He doesn't leave. He dwells and remains. He doesn't want your conforming. He also wants your community. He doesn't just want your duty. He also wants your delight. He doesn't want you merely to stick close to the rules. He wants you to stick close to him. Brings us to chapter 26. And chapter 26 is 37 verses of what the structure of this tabernacle would be like. Verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with the cherubim the work of a skillful workman. Verse 15, Then you shall make the boards of the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. And so there's this curtains that, that are to be made and to be placed in the tabernacle. And the curtains were there not merely to keep people out, but to protect people from this holy God. Ten sheets of fabric six feet by 40 feet, sewn in sets of five to make 22 massive curtains. The interior curtains would have been made with linen, fine linen and, and colorful linens. The exterior curtains, the exterior uh, frame or kind of covering would be skin coverings from animals. Upright pillars for the frame. It's kind of like a circus tent. It, it, it could be constructed and could be taken down and carried away from place to place. The whole tabernacle, all of it was 15 feet by 45 feet by 15 feet. If that's the whole tabernacle, the holy place was 15 by 30 by 15, the most holy place, 15 by 15 by 15. The holy place and the most holy place set apart by this curtain. And then you get to Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2. You shall make 
The altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one of, of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And so what's interesting is God, in the, these instructions to Moses, he started with the most precious furniture in the most holy of holies. He then moves to the furniture that's in the holy place. He then moves to the, the whole tabernacle and just the structure of the tabernacle and how it would be built. He then moves to the court that leads you into the tabernacle. The court would have been accessible to God's people. And yet when you go into the, the holy place, that wasn't accessible to everyone. It was only accessible to the priests. And they would go in and they would make sacrifice each week. And then you would have the high priest could only go into the most holy place. And out in this courtyard, these worshipers could enter into, and there, were, there, were, there was a gate, there was a curtain to get people into there was a bronze altar and a bronze basin. It's interesting. The more close you are to the presence of God, the more precious the metals are. It's all gold inside. Then you begin to, the further and further away you get, the metals begin to go silver and it begins to go bronze. This altar had horns. This would have been a symbol of strength and a perpetual reminder that we could only approach God on the basis of a sacrifice. Seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall, utensils for tending the fire and the sacrifice. And in Leviticus chapter 6, we hear that the priest's job was to ensure that there was a fire that was constantly going on that bronze altar in the courtyard. Always going. A.W. Pink says, There it stood, ever smoking, ever bloodstained, ever open to any guilty Hebrew that might wish to approach it. The sinner, having forfeited his life by sin, sacrifices another life to be given in its stead. The courtyard was to be enclosed with fine twined linen hung on pillars with bases of bronze and hooks of silver. An entrance gate was to be made. It was to be made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. All of the utensils of the courtyard were to be made of bronze, including this large basin for washing. Instructions were given on how to make the oil that would go into the lampstand. I probably should have done this a long time ago, but there's a picture just to give you an idea. The first picture you see, this is the courtyard, the fence, and you see there's a way to get in here. And when you come in, the first thing you would have seen was this perpetual altar in which fire was going. The only way that we can get to the God who's there is through a sacrifice. And after the sacrifice, there would be the cleansing. And then you begin to see, well, wait, what happens when you get into the tabernacle? And there's this curtain, this curtain where only the priests could come into into the holy place, the golden lampstand. In, in Exodus chapter 30, we'll read about the altar of incense, the table of, of bread, the bread of presence. And so the priest would go in and make sacrifice on behalf of the people. And once a year then, the high priest would go back to the holy of holies. And there, the Ark of the Covenant. And so the question when we get to the end of all of that is what lessons do we learn from these instructions? 
I think there are two lessons. Number one, God is more holy than we ever dare imagine. God is more holy than we ever dare imagine. The sanctuary is meant to be a place reserved for a holy God. And the whole layout of the tabernacle showed that the closer one was to get to the holy of holies, the more demanding of purity and holiness was required. One commentator said, separated from the rest of the Israelite encampment, the courtyard was set apart as a holy area. Only the tabernacle, which God dwelt, was considered to be more holy. In fact, if you think about how God called the people at the base of the mountain and then called 74 up midway to the mountain and then called Moses up to the top of the mountain, we see the tabernacle is the same structure that God was speaking with his people at Mount Sinai. Without the courtyard buffer zone, it would have been impossible for Israel to dwell in safety close to a holy God. How in the world, without sacrifice, could anyone ever approach a God who was this holy? He was more holy, and he is more holy than we can dare imagine. Does, is this close to the God that you consider day in and day out? Do you consider God to be this holy? But even our second lesson... God is more gracious than we could ever dare imagine. He's not only more holy than we could have imagined, he's also more gracious. He's come to dwell among his people. This holy, unapproachable, holy kind of God has come and made a way. He has given us access points in order to, to be before this holy God. He has made a way in the activities of the tabernacle for the guilty, for the wayward, for the sinful rebels to have forgiveness and to be restored in relationship with him. The only way any sinful person could ever dwell this close to this God is through some kind of atonement, a covering that would be made for sin. And this tabernacle facilitated that. Just let that sink in. Those who were vessels of his wrath because of their sin in unspeakable mercy are now vessels of his mercy? This is why we sing week in and week out. This is why joy runs deeper than circumstances. This is why we can know God. And before I bust everything out, let's just end the sermon by looking to the better access for you and I today. Number four, the better access of God's today. God's people then were able to have access to this God who came to dwell among them. And you say, well, what about me? Praise be to God that all of that worked, but where's my tent? How in the world do I get access to this God? It's not good news for me if there's no way to get in to the courtyard. Even better for you and me, God has come to dwell among us. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. 
Jesus is the true tabernacle of God. Just as he gave Israel the tabernacle to live with them, so he gave his son that we might live with God. That picture of a holy God over a guilty people who have broken God's law, covered by his blood, that's the picture, that's the testimony of every Christian. We can get God because of the work of Jesus, the better Ark of the Covenant. This is why Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross, acceptable to God. His blood poured out for sinners. There is no mercy unless there is blood that satisfies the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 9 makes clear, without the shedding of blood, there is not forgiveness of sins. And yet Hebrews chapter 9 also makes clear, verse 11 and 12, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The cross is the mercy seat of every Christian. And it's, it's the place, and it's the only place that we can be made right with God. And the empty tomb is proof that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, and that God is satisfied with his death. And all who turn to him, turn from sin, turn to him in faith, they will live with him forever. And if you go to your grave in your sin, you will experience the righteous hatred and anger of this holy God against sin forever in a place called hell. And so if you're not a Christian, this isn't about trying to scare you into heaven. This is about laying hold to life everlasting that's only found in Jesus and his work. I would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust in the work of Jesus. Jesus is not just the one who ushers us into the holy of holies. He's also the bread upon which we are to feast. John chapter 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the provision, Jesus says, that God calls us to partake of. Jesus and Jesus alone can satisfy your, the, the hunger pangs of your soul and bring you into right relationship with God. Jesus is not only the bread of life, he's also, John chapter 9, verse 5, the light of the world. He is the brightness and the brilliance of the radiance of the glory of God. There, there's this, this promise in Isaiah chapter 9, as Isaiah is speaking about this coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And so Isaiah is speaking about the Savior who will come, and he talks about the, the Savior will be light. He will give light. He will be light. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, speaking of the one who will come, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. His name was Jesus and he alone brings us out of darkness and into glorious light. But he's not just the one who gets us into the holy of holies. He's not just the bread of life. And he's not just the light of the world. He's the better sacrifice than the perpetual sacrifice that was going on in the altar day in and day out. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering... 
he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It was impossible for animal blood to take sin away. What people needed was a perfect sacrifice, one that does not go away, but one that does do away with sin once and for all. And that is what Jesus provided. He didn't make a sacrifice on the bronze altar at the tabernacle. He made his sacrifice by suffering and dying on the wooden cross, shedding his blood, the very blood of God. He died as a substitute in the place of any who would turn and trust in him. And when he died, that curtain, which was thick and protected people from coming in, it tore in two. Access is now available. We are able to come into his presence only because of his mercy. God came to dwell with his people in a tabernacle then, and he does it through Christ now. And so let's marvel at his grace. Let's spend our lives for him. Let's enjoy him. And one of the ways that God has so given his people to grow their faith is coming to this table to be reminded of the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that made us his 